Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey everyone, it's Joe Scott here with Download. A quick warning before we start the show. I just want to come out ahead of this and apologize. We had some technical difficulties while recording this comment section episode of our show. And it's because of that that I'm not going to be sounding that great. It's because of that that Chris will not be sounding that great either. And it's entirely my fault. At the same time, we've got these uh, really good questions and comments from people. And a nice little interview with Catherine Para, who helped start NRG, the National Research Group. So I wanted you to hear those. Otherwise, I probably would have just never played this episode at all. So... Uh, enjoy that and thank you on this special comment section of download the rise and fall of harry knowles we've got an update on the harry knowles godzilla review scandal we've got the voice of the opposition in the test screening review saga and listener questions comments and yes even a few complaints all of this and more so let's get ready to dial up log on and download welcome Welcome to the comments section of Download. I am Joe Scott, the uh, creator of the series, and with me is our executive producer and the birthday girl, Chris. Uh, happy birthday, Chris. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. It's been a great birthday weekend. My son's birthday was right before mine, so it's just been full of cake and celebrations. Do you feel like having your kid's birthday so close to yours kind of sucks all the joy out of your birthday? No, no, it just kind of adds to the joy. Um, it's just, I, I don't know, it's just a continuation of fun. I mean, uh, this sounds so campy, but he was like the best birthday gift ever for me. Aww. So I, I look at it very fondly. Yeah. So um, let's go ahead and dive into episode three, which we ran last week. Uh, this episode was titled Almost Famous, which is uh, also the name of the film by Cameron Crowe. It sort of dives into a few subjects, one of them being uh, the test screening reviews. Um, and also one of the things that I think was really interesting for me was sort of learning about Sony and the way they had to grapple with Harry Knowles behind the scenes with their movie Starship Troopers and how these interactions establish some of the early examples, not only of influencer culture, but then sort of the evolution of convergence culture as studios are really trying to rein this guy in. And I guess, how did you look at that as you were helping me sort of piece together this story? Um, it was very interesting, right? The fact that they were kind of trying to like wine and dine him and to get favorable reviews. Um, it all felt very icky to me. Um, and I know that part of the Hollywood experience is the glam, right? Um, and there's a fine, but there's a fine line between um, treating your guest well and, um, and, and bribing them, right? Don't you think? Yeah, yeah. I think for me, that brings up a, an important line because you've got, as a reviewer, you've got to really 
remember your greatest loyalty is to your readers. And the minute you start spending time with the quote unquote enemy, that's what they called them in almost famous. They really buy your objectivity. And if they don't buy it, they at least buy the perception of your objectivity. And that can create a problem as well. But, um, you know, I think it was interesting because Harry posts those images from the film and the studio hated it and they sent a legal notice to take them down. And then Harry managed to rally the fan outrage to cause the studio to buckle. And that's happened a lot of times lately. I I remember recently with the Sonic the Hedgehog movie, the fans Mm -hmm. hated the way the character looked and they Mm -hmm. caused Paramount to spend a bunch of money to like to re to remake the film basically. And then uh, Which again, was a also, good call. <laughs> good call. Did you find the yes. original design to be creepy? Yeah, yeah. It was definitely a little off-putting for sure. So the, the redesign looks much better. It does. You know, and I, kids like the new movie. I, my kid really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, I just thought it was, um, it's interesting that they're able to convince, to have that level of power. You know, when I was a kid growing up, there was a TV show called Freaks and Geeks. Uh, it was mm-hmm. produced by Judd Great Aptow. Show. Great show. Loved it. Mm-hmm. And it got canceled. And, you know, there was sort of this fan campaign to get them to put it back on the air. And it failed. Uh, because I, I just don't think the fans had the power. But uh, that was around the same time as this was happening. And it seemed like Harry managed to really rally the fan power in ways that I, I think studios didn't realize yet. Going into the test screening saga, though, you know, there, mm-hmm. this was something that really made Ain't It Cool News famous. And, you know, for me, one of the interesting things, you know, you're always looking for ways when you're telling a story about the internet to sort of find that crossroads, that intersection between our online lives and then what we do in reality. And I couldn't think of a better instance than uh, when Drew McWeeny started wearing disguises to attend these okay. test screenings. And, um, The question I have for you is, what do you think about the studios trying to really lock down the test screenings? Did you think that, did you side with the studios in this? Did you side with the disruptors of Ain't It Cool News? What did you think was the right call? Yeah, I might have a little different take, different of a take than you, um, just because you know, I've taken students to a lot of places, um, you know, media industries, and um, tech companies, and we've had to sign a lot of non-disclosure agreements. Mm -hmm. The understanding is like, if we're going through, we might see some sort of idea that hasn't been finalized. They don't want us to share that idea until they're ready to release it, right? And, you know, you can kind of think of a creative work similarly. So um, I don't, I don't know if I buy the idea of them trying to protect and save like the poor director's vision, you know, because sometimes, you know, it, it shouldn't always be the director's vision, right? It's, it's a team effort. So, so I think I have a different take on that too. Yeah. And, you know, one of the things that would happen sometimes is, you know, people would run these reviews for these test screenings where the movie wasn't finished yet. And here's a fact, you know, if you watch a movie and it doesn't have like a complete completed score, if there are missing special effects scenes, you might not be so positive about that experience simply because there's important pieces in that experience that you expect to be fully completed and ready and they're not. So then you're already sort of at a negative bias there. Like you're starting Mm -hmm. with negativity, like 
this sucked. The movie looked like shit. Maybe it looked like shit because it hasn't been color corrected yet. It sounded like shit. Maybe it sounded like shit because they haven't added all the sound effects yet. There was a legendary screening that happened during Buttonumathon for a secret film that they called Green Boots. And what Green Boots was, was a, it was a movie. It was like a romantic comedy that starred Gary Oldman as a little person. And the way they achieved this was he just walked around on his knees and as absurd as that sounds, and he sounds wore horrible. these green boots on his legs so that they, they could be chroma keyed out in post-production with special effects. Um, and the director was losing control of his movie, which I don't know if any director could have saved that movie from being good. It sounds <laughs> terrible. No, no. <laughs> um, I've never seen it. But um, so the director in a last ditch effort to try to keep control of his movie convinced them to play it at Buttonamathon his cut of the movie. The problem was his cut of the movie did not have completed special effects. So the audience watched this movie. It was an, it was an incomplete comedy with Gary Oldman wearing these green boots over his legs. And the audience just went um, fucking crazy because they're just <laughs> laughing at how stupid it looks the whole time to watch <laughs> Gary Oldman walking around with his knees wearing clearly these green boots <laughs> you know it's sort of ridiculous adds, yeah it adds this <laughs> what whole, was gary like, oldman thinking <laughs> yeah so you know the ethics we dive into sort of the ethics of attending media events and even press interviews for movies that you're going to review and you know one thing i want to say is that i caught myself making this mistake once i got invited to a media event for this, I would say, B-tier Will Ferrell comedy called Semi-Pro. It's the one about the basketball players. Mm -hmm. And I got to go to this media event. I got to meet Will Ferrell, which, you know, at that time, he was hugely popular. And then the director came out. And, you know, we had watched the movie before the interviews. And the director comes out, and he asks everyone in the room, did you like the movie? You know, just trying to really intimidate us. And everyone wow. was kind of like, gently politely nodding their heads and this includes me like we all got a little <laughs> punk there by this guy <laughs> and so one of the things that i did was i did not review the movie semi-pro um i made sure that that was something i would not do because it's like yeah i just realized like i'm compromised and i need to just take myself out of this equation review wise um but speaking of the reviews, you know, you know, we talked about Godzilla being one of the movies where Harry attended a media event and felt that his review might have been compromised. And I think one of the things that he did was he wrote those two reviews. He wrote one that he completely erased, and then he wrote sort of a second review where he came out negatively against the film after having a chance to see it with a little more distance, a little more perspective, and uh, not in the same theater with the Taco Bell dog and Muhammad Ali. And it was not as positive. And we had a listener, Daniel, actually find the original review on Web Archive. It looked like he did a little bit of data mining and he found it for us. And uh, so we've, we've added it to our social medias at Download Pod. We've also got a link for that here on uh, this podcast description. So if you want to check out the original review, it's there. We posted it on our Facebook page and one listener he commented that you know if he just left this review up by itself it would have been fine like you could have read it you would never have been the wiser that it had been 
compromise that wasn't that bad of a review as far as Harry Knowles reviews go. Like it's kind of just very laudatory and, oh my gosh, this was great. Oh my gosh, that was great. But the fact that he wrote the second review and I'm going to make this argument kind of was an attempt by him to be a little transparent to say, Hey, I got a little caught up in this stuff. And, uh, you know, here's my actual um, more sober thoughts on this film. I don't know. I just thought, you know, that was a weird move because normally film critics never just immediately write a second review of a movie. You know, once they've put out the review, that's the review, that's their opinion. Um, Occasionally you'll have critics like Roger Ebert. He'll come back, you know, a few years later and re-review films with a newer perspective, but that's after years, not right away, not like within days. But I just thought that was uh, interesting. And I just wanted to thank Daniel for finding that for us. Yeah, thank you. And if you click on the link, it's like a blast from the past. Like I said, I've, I have never spent time on Ain't It Cool News' website. So it was interesting for me to see what it looked like back then. But I mean, it's just like all those websites from the late 90s where it had really tacky wallpaper behind it that made it hard to read. Everything <laughs> was center aligned and it felt like a blog. Like his, his review was just like very rambly, very, you know, it just felt like he was writing a casual blog. It was very strange. And then at the end, like he wrote and like, I don't know, like 40 point font you know to uh, like now for spoiler stuff that I love don't read below and it's just like it just feels so casual so it's just shocking that they he got the amount of power that he did based off of you know this right yeah so here's one question for you sure. Michael Bay uh, his movie <laughs> Armageddon which Harry Knowles reviewed positively he took a lot of flack for that but that film was also brought into the Criterion Collection to some people's dismay. But Michael Bay, <laughs> good filmmaker, bad filmmaker. What's your <laughs> What's your take? Um, my take is I am not Michael Bay's target audience at all. <laughs> so that is my take. There are people that love his work, right? Um, my son is a big Transformers fan, although we can't, we don't let him watch those movies because they're not age appropriate, No, which also perplexes me. Like, why are you making a Transformers movie for adults when you have a whole generation of kids who love it? Um, but that's fine. That's, that's just my parent, my gripes as a parent, but, um, yeah, I mean, his movies are popular. People love him. Um, they are not for me. So what's your take on Michael Bay? I really hated his movies. I, you know, I liked, <laughs> I liked The Rock. But for the most part, I did not get into his films. What happened, though, I went to see his movie Pain and Gain. And I'm not saying this, mm-hmm. like, improved the way I looked at his previous films. But Pain and Gain kind of gave me an insight that maybe here's a director who has complete, total disdain for Americans. And uh, typically just for humans in general. And so his movies are sort of made that way where the cars are more important characters. The vehicles are more important characters than the people who drive them. And I, once I sort of made that connection, I was like, oh, wait, like his movies have all sort of expressed just how loathsome human beings are in general. I, I didn't know that it, I didn't know that was the point. I, I thought he was just a really bad storyteller and was really bad at <laughs> characterization, but he just hates humanity. 
you know, <laughs> nice. <laughs> I don't, I don't like those movies though either, but I, I do at least appreciate the fact that all this came from the perspective of someone who just thinks we're all gross, stupid, and disgusting people. <laughs> you know, I honestly don't know his movies well enough to really comment or speak to that. Um, I, I, I don't like action movies. Um, I zone out when I'm watching a lot of action. It's not exciting to me. I like rich character development and drama and conflict. Um, I, 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 and, and character transformation, like that's the stuff that gets me excited. So yeah, not sure his has that. I mean, maybe it does, but no, doesn't, it doesn't, doesn't seem like it. <laughs> no. But, um, so we got some questions, Chris. Yes. All right. So the first one's from, is it famous? T-H-A-M-U-S. It might um, be famous or Thomas. Yeah. Oh, okay. So um, how many of Ain't It Cool News's former staff declined to be interviewed for the podcast? Hmm. So I can say, just thinking off the top of my head numbers wise, I would say about mm -hmm. six. Mm -hmm. Six that I reached out and contacted. Um, there was one person I really wanted to speak with, a gentleman named Glenn Oliver who ran the coaxial side of Ain't It Cool News. That was the side devoted to reviewing uh, home video, uh, DVDs, movies that were on TV and the TV series. Um, and he was uh, he was Harry Knowles' longest friend who worked on the site besides uh, a gentleman named Roland Denoy, who we'll talk about later. But, you know, I, I really wanted the insight that maybe he had. And, you know, we did talk via email, but he just didn't want... Uh, to participate in this uh, story at all and you know I think we talked about this last week with the celebrities that interacted with Harry Knowles maybe there's just no there's no good reason for him to be part of this you know it's it's a very yeah. fraught subject matter and maybe he was just worried that it would bite him in the ass or blow up in his face if um, he participated um, and then the other person that I really wanted to speak with and someone who knows a lot about the business side of Ain't It Cool News was Roland Denoy, who is Harry's friend from childhood. We haven't really said a whole lot about him yet in this show, but we are going to much later. Um, that is a very strange, strained relationship that has somehow survived a lot of crazy things uh, throughout the site's history. And you wouldn't even know that he was part of the site except that he would later get the site in a lot of trouble. So yeah, it, mm. I sent him several emails. I called and left him voicemails on two different numbers. Uh, no response, nothing. So the next question is from Zach and he said, oh, this is more of a comment than a question. So he said, <laughs> baffled by some of the interviewee anecdotes that they chose to include in this. There's a dude describing an open bar like it's something you'd only find on Epstein's Island. You, you know, have a response to that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I do. So a lot of people <laughs> sort of glommed onto this one, you know, and first off, thanks to everyone who listens to our show. Thanks to everyone who has yeah. feedback about our show. Even the people who yeah. say not positive things. Thank you. Honestly, I, I really appreciate it. Every bit of it. Um, the one thing I'll say in defense of Patrick Sorrell, who created Corona Coming Attractions, is that you know, here was a guy who was from this working class family. His dad was a truck driver. His mom was a stay at home mom. He built a website, did this sort of in his spare time after hours at his job. 
and then it blew up into this thing and you know he got recognized for this internationally uh, recognized award for the through the internet got to go down to this thing where he was surrounded by more than a thousand people just getting completely shit-faced and he had never seen anything like that before and what i really appreciated was just his emotional response to that memory and just his emotional truth and i wanted to share that because you know he he was not from this world and suddenly he's right there in the middle of this almost like great Gatsby-esque moment happening in San Francisco. I just really appreciated that. I, I think the other thing I want to say too, is that some people complain that we spent any time with Patrick at all. And the reason I'm doing that is because he's kind of a character who comes back in uh, later chapters. So we're, we're not done with Patrick. And so I was really introducing him and in, in his perspective and he's coming back later so um here's another comment from jason who said it's more of a um he said me when joe hallenbeck claims he shouted out death to schumacher in the middle of batman and robin and the entire audience went ape shit and then there was a meme of ron burgundy saying i don't believe you yeah well you know what's interesting about that First off, I would say that that person, his name is Jason Bailey, and he hosts a really good podcast called Fun City Cinema. It's uh, this New York-focused podcast about cinema history. A lot of great episodes. I really like the episode specifically about Home Alone 2, Lost in New York, and uh, Death Wish, the <laughs> Death Wish movies with Charles Bronson. You know, the one thing I'll say about that is that Joe Hollenbeck is not the only person to talk about that screening where people were cheering and going ape shit. Um, as he was doing press to promote Batman and Robin, Joel Schumacher did a couple of interviews, media interviews with Harry Knowles. And in one of those interviews, he brought in um, film critic Liz Smith to sort of talk about her reaction to the film. And she brought up that screening and said that people weren't cheering because the movie was bad. They were cheering because they loved the movie. So even she acknowledges they're cheering. And so um, you can either say that they were cheering because of this comment that Joe Hollenbeck made, or they were cheering because they liked um, Batman and Robin, um, which one is more believable. And also, I just want to recognize that whenever you're doing any sort of like oral history, right, that, that these are things that happened a long time ago. People, um, memories are, are, are fuzzy. Also, when you tell a story, you might, if you tell it over and over, it might change a little bit each time. Um, it doesn't mean that things are entirely false if things are misremembered or remembered differently by different people. Um, this is kind of what he believes and this is his perspective of the event. And, you know, we're, we're putting it forward as this is, this is what, what he remembers, right? So I think yeah. take what you want from it. Yeah, and actually, you know, one of the things that we had to cut short in that episode was his full retelling of this event. And um, actually, let's just go ahead and play right here. Uh, and what I remember distinctly is, you know, I didn't think anything of it, but uh, it was um, it was later on when it became kind of controversial. And I remember Harry being on one of the morning shows with Joel Schumacher, and uh, and I remember Liz, Liz Smith, the columnist Liz Smith used to write for the LA Times amongst other publications, uh, talking about this screening. I know she was friends with Joel back in the day and may, may he rest in peace. Let's, let's just say 
you know, Joel was a, a really interesting filmmaker. I think he made some great movies and made some bad choices in some of his films. But uh, overall, I, you know, I really enjoyed most of his films. Uh, Batman and Robin not being one of them. But uh, I remember Liz Smith commenting on the screening saying, you know, the audience was applauding. And, and it was just like, what a bullshit spin. Because they weren't applauding. They were, they, they, they were applauding me screaming out death to Schumacher. And then after that, it turned into a mystery science theater 3000 kind of thing where other audience members were booing and hissing and, and saying stuff because as the movie progressed, it got progressively worse. Um, so it was, uh, it, it was interesting to, to, to be, you know, young and naive um, to see the interest the, the Hollywood spin on it. Uh, and I remember that was the first time Harry really came out um, of the gates uh, and, uh, you know, was sticking up for the fans and just saying, hey, you know, this is bullshit. This is what happened. You know, you made a bad movie, you know, own it. All right. So here's another um, comment. This is from Bob. And he says, great podcast fascinating deep dive into a website that was part of my daily routine back in the day. Never was in the talkbacks, but read them like a daily newspaper. Lost interest in Ain't It Cool News over time, and unfortunately wasn't surprised at the allegations at HK, Harry, Harry Knowles. Wow. Well, you know, first, thanks so much, uh, Bob. Yeah, thanks, Bob. Yeah. Uh, you know, and it was definitely part of my daily routine for a while, too. But, you know, the other website I was really obsessed with Chris was uh, I was really obsessed with Roger Ebert's website. Um, originally it was located mm -hmm. on the Sun Times website and yeah. I would go there every Friday when he dropped his new reviews. And I did that until the day he died. And actually here's the truth. I continue to do it even after he died. I, I go to rogerebert.com and it's kind of sad almost. It's just, it was just so burned into my daily routines every Friday. Mm -hmm. This is what I do. I go to his website hoping that maybe, just maybe, they have a, a new review by Roger Ebert. And um, wow, I don't. That, that's amazing. I think I was too busy looking up punk rock shows and downloading music from Napster or something. I don't know. I don't even remember what I did back then. I spent a lot of time on the internet, um, but I think it was mostly music focused. Even though I was in film school, I, I, I can't explain it. Speaking of punk rock, we have a, another comment from Spence who said, this Ain't It Cool News podcast is one of the worst and most misguided <laughs> things I have ever listened to. It compares the site to Rolling Stone in the 60s, Harry to Charles Foster Kane, and BNAT to punk rock, and I can't stop listening to it. <laughs> well, you know. <laughs> Sometimes you get a compliment wrapped in an insult. Sometimes you get an insult yeah. wrapped in a compliment. I'll take both. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, thank you. Yeah. I guess there's a lot to unwrap there. I think one thing is a lot of, some people have taken umbrage with comparisons between Harry Knowles and Charles Foster Kane. You know, and, and I'll, I think that comes in two parts. One, that I made so many comparisons in the first episode. And, you know, if that is where you're coming from, Mea culpa, I definitely made a lot of comparisons between Harry Knowles and Charles Foster Kane. Um, my bad. If, if that was uh, painful to listen to, I apologize. That's just where I was going narratively there. Um, but I think the other thing I sometimes sense is that some people find the comparison between Harry Knowles and Charles Foster Kane to be me saying that this is like a compliment. 
as almost like hero worshiping. And um, if you've ever watched Citizen Kane, that's definitely not the case. Charles Foster Kane is not a hero. He's not this great person at all. I get that Charles, that's the movie Citizen Kane is one of the greatest movies, but there's a difference between Citizen Kane and Charles Foster Kane. Like one is a great movie. One is a not great character, a fictional character. Can you tell us why you think Charles Foster Kane wasn't a great person as a character? Well, you know, I think that, for instance, you know, he worked in journalism and his job was to tell the truth and he didn't. He would, he would wield the, the written word as a weapon uh, to accomplish his agenda. And I think that ethically that's wrong. Um, but I, I, you know, I, you can say that that's something that Harry Knowles also did. I think the other key thing that I really glommed onto was that I locked in on with these stories is that both of these characters, Harry Knowles, as I know him, and Charles Foster Kane, as he was portrayed in the film, their destiny was sort of foisted upon them, you know, and, and they were ultimately doomed because they made poor choices with that destiny. All right. So our next question is from James. Um, and well, it's, a, it's another comment. He says, loving the show. Really interesting to see the problems of today's internet in embryonic form. Well, thank you. And yeah, <laughs> like that's, that to me is why I wanted to make the show. I really find that there's a lot of crazy stories on the internet. You're a media studies scholar, so you've spent a lot mm -hmm. of time sort of analyzing internet culture too. And the, for me, the one thing about the internet is that its history is sort of written on a dry erase board and it's being erased constantly. And I, I just don't want to lose whole chunks of the story. Like it's going to be gone soon. Well, thankfully we do have web archive, which is nice, but yes, I get, I, I, it, you're right though. Like it's always changing um, every day, right? Things might be added or deleted or or, or changed. And um, there's also so much content out there. It's hard to remember or, you know, preserve it all, right? So this is just kind of a little snapshot into this website. And we can't tell all the stories or talk about all the people, unfortunately. Um, but we are able to kind of retell the ones that we have access to. And, and also just the ones that make sense in terms of like an audio story, you know, like, sure, that's always hard to sort of find a way to make the internet come alive in audio form. And I guess that's what yes. podcasts are. But yeah. All right. So um, our next one is about is from Jeremy. And so Jeremy writes, can't recommend the podcast about Harry Knowles, but there was a damning little detail in the last episode when a ghostwriter admitted they wrote all the references to 70s cinema in his biography because Harry was pretty much culturally illiterate pre-1980. Patient zero. Well, you know, again, like, thanks for listening to our show. And, you know, thanks for the feedback there. But I guess there's two things here. One is that I don't think Paul Cullum, um, who was one of the co-writers of Harry's books, counts as a ghostwriter because ghostwriters typically work uncredited. It's my understanding, and maybe I'm wrong, but the other thing I'll say is that maybe I didn't get this point across, but I didn't say, and, and Paul didn't say that Harry was illiterate of cinema pre-1980. He's steeped in classic cinema. He just didn't, his one blind spot is the 1970s specifically, and that was sort of when he was being 
torn away from one parent's house to another and he had no access to a, a cinema like the, he said the closest movie theater was far away so he that's just a blind spot for him is the 1970s harry Knowles is patient zero for a lot of problems with cinema culture today but you know i think that it's important that when we criticize him that those uh criticisms are based in fact so i, I did want to clear clarify that one thing um, here's another question. Um, it's actually a few questions from Daylin. The first one is how many buttonumathons did you manage to attend? One. Okay, just one. And then the next question, at what point did you stop reading in it cool news and why did you stop? You know, that's interesting because you know, I, I read it every day while I was in high school. But then I did trail off. And I think one of the reasons I stopped reading the site, other than the fact that I just found better things to read, truth be told, there were a lot of better things to read. The reason I stopped going to the site so obsessively is because one day they had this guest column written by Kevin Smith, the filmmaker of Clerks and Mallrats and Chasing Amy. And Kevin Smith was basically writing to the people that were on Ain't Cool News in their comment section and telling us to get a life, to stop being a bunch of like hateful, bitter people <laughs> and, and to, you know, go out there and, and try to make something of our lives. Like you can't just sit here and be angry on the internet the whole time. And um, I read that. And I was like, you know, that's a great point. And so I, I did leave the site. I did avoid the comment sections, but then, uh, you know, they invented this thing called Facebook and they invented this thing called Twitter. And I found myself, you know, kind of living in an actual comment section for a long time um and I, I think it wasn't until very recently wait why am i disagreeing with anyone on the internet that's that's a stupid use of your time yeah it's taken us all some time to realize that you know it's a waste of time to argue with people on the internet and some people are still learning that lesson so um my advice some... to you is stop arguing with people on the internet. <laughs> Everybody just stop. Your yeah. life will be happier. She also asked if you were reading Ain't It Cool News through the Knowles revelations or did you drop off earlier than that? I assume uh, Dalen means, yeah. yeah, during the accusations. Yeah. You know, once, once Drew McWeenie left Ain't It Cool News in 2008, um, I really stopped going there at all. Um, on a regular basis, I, you know, I maybe go there like once every two months just to see what they were up to. But um, I just moved on to other. If I was interested in movie news, I went to other movie news sites. There were there were places that were just more organized and more dedicated to getting you the news in a more timely basis. And w without Drew's writing, I didn't really have any reason to go there as much as I used to. But when the Knowles revelations came out, I I was shocked. You know, and I guess I was shocked in part because I, you know, it's shocking. It's terrible. It's a terrible thing. But then also one of the things that I realized as a sort of thing, but I was like, there were a lot of these clues, these stories that he told that were just right there in front of us the whole time. And then uh, their last question is how many episodes, not including comment section, are you planning for? <laughs> uh, I believe this is... It was originally a six-part story, then it became a seven-part story, then it became an eight-part story. <laughs> I think we're locked in at nine. There's nine, nine. parts, <laughs> so I believe that is the case. It's nine parts, so there you go, <laughs> nine. And you know, maybe some people think that's too many. Great, cool. But for those that want to keep 
learning more, they are there. So, yeah. or they will be there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think there's a lot of opportunities with some of these episodes to focus on different aspects, not only of the Ain't It Cool News story, but then of the internet itself and what it is doing to all of us. And, you know, that that's really what's propelling me to, to tell the story and to tell it for as long as we are telling it. So our next question is from Rick Dank, who writes, uh, things purported to have happened on the Ain't It Cool News podcast that certainly did not. Vin Diesel saying, oh shit, Masa Worm, I love your stuff. Hiding under the galaxy, listening to these horrible name-dropping lies. Well, okay. You know, the one thing I'll say is uh, Mass Worm, um, whose real name is C. Robert Cargill, I don't think he was telling that story to name drop. I think he was talking about sort of existing as a proto-influencer and going to the strip in Hollywood and being recognized by Vin Diesel um, based on his pen name at Ain't It Cool News. And there's a couple of factors there. One is that Vin Diesel is a nerd. He spent a lot of time um, on the internet. Uh, the other important thing to realize is that, you know, the first Fast and Furious movie came out. The fifth Fast and Furious movie had not come out. I think that's when he entered a new level of his stardom. And so just hanging out at a bar, you run into this guy who works for the site. Yeah, you're like, oh shit, Massworm, I love your stuff. Here's the thing to consider is that maybe if he said that, he wasn't being 100% sincere. You know, um, here are these people, these quote unquote gatekeepers of the online movie news uh, media industrial complex they can really help you if they think that you are their friend. And I think that's what he was getting at was that these people were trying to sell the illusion of friendship to, to get their influence and to use their influence uh, for themselves. Also, Vin Diesel comes back in the next episode. And I think you'll see that he's actually pretty well acquainted with Ain't It Cool News and that there might've been an agenda there when he was talking to see uh, Robert Cargill. So that's all I'm going to say about that. And Joe, should I reread that question? Because I think I said Masa Worm because of the You're way fine. he spelled it. Are You're you fine. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. I uh, said it okay. a bunch of different ways when I went to the site. Oh. So it's only fair. He picked okay. a weird right. name, a weird ass it name. It is a so. weird name. It is yeah. weird. All right. All right. And then our last question is from Erin. Um, so she uh, writes or... Sorry, let me say that again. So our last question is from Aaron, um, who writes, what have been the most challenging things in putting this podcast together? What have been the easiest, maybe even surprisingly so? Keep up the great work. Love the show. Thank you. And uh, mm -hmm. I'll Thanks, flip Aaron. this upside down and say the easiest part was getting a lot of these people to tell interesting stories. Uh, you know, you're, interview you're interviewing people who are natural storytellers who spend a lot of time with words. And so there's some people who could really spin a good yarn. So you want to get people comfortable enough to tell you a story. And I think that's what some of these people did very well. I think we got a lot of good stories. I had to leave a lot of them out because there's just no way to tell them in the narrative flow of even a nine part prestige podcast series. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that was the easiest part. The most challenging, I'll say, three things. Um, finding women to talk with you know one is just finding women at all because this the story of any cool news is very male 
you know, and yeah. it was one of the first comments that my partner gave me is like, wow, this is just a sausage party. It's like all these <laughs> guys talking. I'm kind of nauseated by it. And I was like, fair, <laughs> fair, true. And, you know, some of us you, have trauma from white nerds. And this just kind of brings up that trauma. I get it. Yeah. Yeah. And that was one of the things that you really helped me with was finding these people to speak with you know and that was sort of one of our rules in the editorial process was like you know when we need contacts from like a scholar or a critic we need to really emphasize women voices mm-hmm. you know and I, I think one of the very first scholars I talked to because of you was Kimberly Orzowski who was actually the one person to write a scholarly article about ain't it cool news like yeah. she was the one and only and that was entirely through you. So thanks for helping me uh, land that interview, Chris. Um, Absolutely. Maybe we should link to her work as a thank you. 100%. You know, she definitely mm-hmm. deserves credit there. Uh, the other person <laughs> is Ray Alexandra, um, mm-hmm. who, you know, she wrote this essay sort of linking fatal attraction to Me Too, the Me Too movement. And got a lot of angry hate mail from uh, a lot of non-female readers. And so when I emailed her, she initially was not going to respond at all. And then she looked me up on Facebook and my one saving grace there was that um, I worked at a summer camp with, (laughs) I worked at a summer camp with one of her friends. That's amazing. Yeah. So she asked this friend, like, hey, do you know this Joe Scott person? Are they crazy? Is this like a psycho comments guy trying to come at me and like bring me <laughs> onto some MRA podcast or something? <laughs> and uh, they're like, no, no, totally um, fine to talk to this person. Yeah, just finding women to talk with, you know, they're one of the challenges is, you know, if you want to reach out to male film critics, male film scholars, like they leave the direct messages open on Twitter through their socials. A lot of, I found a lot of women film scholars and a lot of women film critics and a lot of women who comment on film, their comments are off. (laughs) They've hidden all ways to contact them because I think they've been harassed into doing so by a lot of awful men. Yeah. As a game studies researcher, I remember when Gamergate happened and I remember um, seeing all these game female critics and and game designers and even academics get targeted. And I was scared for a while that as an intersectional feminist game studies researcher that I would get targeted too. And even doing this podcast, right? I've even thought about like, oh, wow, is this going to cause me to be targeted at some point? Um, hopefully not so far so good, but you know, it's a real risk for women and it's really unfortunate. And that's why you hear less of our voices, um, because people are horrible and harass us and scare us. Right. So, um, so it's, 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 it's really unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. It sucks. So don't be a jerk everyone. <laughs> yeah. You know, the other, I think the other two things though, that were difficult for me. One was finding the right aperture to tell the story. You know, the, the internet is huge. This story is huge. And so what do you focus on? And I found it easy to start the story. I'm 
finding it easy to end this story, but the challenge for me was the middle. Like, where do you go in the middle of this to connect mm -hmm. the beginning to the end? And how far out do you adjust your camera uh, to capture all this? And, you know, it, that was a difficult time for me, maybe because I also have uh, ADHD, <laughs> but <laughs> it was really hard. <laughs> It makes me think of there's this really great book I think it's called on the wire but it's about it's a, a graphic novel um in which they interview uh people that work in audio and uh, and podcasting and storytelling from NPR and they talk about how at some point in every project they get lost in this German forest it's like you're lost in the middle of the forest and you can't really see a way out and you know it's just trees all around you and you don't know which path to take and I think when you're in the middle of something especially something with this many voices this many storylines this many things it's really easy to get lost in the forest right so um, it's something that I think everybody goes through spent a lot of time in that forest so, yeah <laughs> once you said that like oh god it was a forest it really was it was haunted yeah. um, and like one thing like i think in aaron's question like what has been the most challenging thing in putting the podcast together i would say finding the time i you know i don't i'm sure people don't really think about the fact that we all have full-time jobs right and we're doing this on the side and it's a tremendous amount of work for you um for everyone on the project right and it, it takes time but it's um it's worth it right it's been it's been fun and i'm glad that we're able to tell these stories i'm, I'm glad people are responding um either way mm -hmm. so you know the, the other final challenging thing though is was also knowing when to begin telling the story because mm. there's a lot of pieces we would start i would start to write and record and edit the episodes and then I would finish and then someone else would contact me like, hey, I'd love to talk to you. Like, oh, shit. I really could have used your comments in the story I just told. Mm, and yeah. so I went through a lot of times like that where you would be finished with the story and then you would talk to someone who could really bring another very helpful perspective to it. And, you know, it's, it's different than is if this was written because then you just write it. But then you've got to then re-record and re-edit and remaster. And there were a couple of times where I was really hamstrung by just knowing, should I go now and tell the story or should I wait for the possibility that I might speak with person number X? Um, right. Yeah. But that really brings us to our interview that we're going to play right now. So, you know, we, I produced this episode that we played this week and it, it's been finished for a minute. And then two weeks ago, I got a message from Catherine Para who is the co-founder of NRG, the National Research Group. She co-founded the group with Joe Farrell, this company. Uh, this is the company that ran the test screenings. And I would have loved to have had this interview when I was writing, preparing this episode, but she never checks these messages. She says she doesn't check her messages. <laughs> so she just saw mine and decided to contact me out of the blue. So not only that, she contacts me and says, hey, I'd love to talk to you, but it has to be today. And it has to be in a couple of hours. I was nowhere near my recording rig. I was nowhere where I could get anything ready to record this even professionally. So this is, the sound quality is not going to be great, specifically on my voice. You can actually hear Catherine great, but um, I had no time to really prepare these questions. And um, what I really wanted to do was accomplish two things, which was one, to get her perspective on the war that her company fought with Harry Knowles. And two, 
you know, part of the show's mission is to restore the context that the internet takes away from everybody. And Joe Farrell was this boogeyman. He was this guy I was told was a villain. Um, in the show, Drew McQueenie, aka Moriarty, calls him a cancer on the film industry. And, you know, that's his side. That's his perspective. But I wanted to see what her perspective was on Joe Farrell, a person she worked with, a person that she knew. So I could just get a sense of who he was as a person through that lens. And she was more than happy to, to share that with me. I apologize for sounding awkward. I apologize for sounding poorly. You're not going to be able to hear my voice super great, but I did want to share Catherine Parra's perspective on this because it's a voice I would have loved to have had when we produced the show uh, when we did it. So here it is. I guess the first question I had for you is how did you get involved with the NRG? Is it Joe Farrell or Joe Farrell? Joe Farrell. Well, it's a very long story, but I will give you the very abbreviated version. Um, In the late 70s, Joe and I worked at the Harris Poll, Lewis Harris and Associates. Lou decided he wanted to have an office in Sunbelt. So Joe and I came to Los Angeles with another person to um, set up a Harris office here. It became um, pretty apparent that the, um, you know, the best, you know, the, the way to get to do kind of work that we did would be to focus on the entertainment industry. So Joe and I, um, with, with another man, started NRG, but because um, Lou Harris didn't want to do that. He didn't want to be involved in the entertainment industry. So we said, well, let's, you know, we'll try it and see how it goes. So in early 1978, we started NRG. We came into it from, um, well, a couple of perspectives. We certainly worked at the Harris Poll, which was a, um, poll, uh, you know, the pre- one of the premier political polling organizations of its time. And what we realized is that, you know, a movie opens on a Friday. And if it doesn't open well, it's doomed. So doing in those days, it was concentrated on movies. We didn't have streaming services. So um, if, so it's a little bit like voting. If you don't vote on Tuesday and if your candidate loses, you can't go back and vote on Wednesday. So that, that, um, so the marketing of each movie had to gear up to opening. Were you guys sort of the originators of the test screening process? No, we weren't. There was a company called ASI, Audience Surveys, Inc., they had a theater on Sunset, and they did uh, a lot of screenings, and they did most of the screenings. When Joe and I came um, to visit the studios and told them about what we were doing, um, we were asked if we would do some screenings because the studios didn't want to be committed to only doing screenings on Sunset Boulevard. So they asked us if we would do them you know, around the city, around the area. At first, we were, we were reluctant. We had to think it over, and we did, and um, we decided we'd try it. So, so we did, and the rest, as they say, is history. One of the things they cite Joe Farrell with is uh, sort of reshaping the movie Fatal Attraction. Do you remember working with that? Well, film? it's a very interesting story, and you know Joe would never take credit for it, and he shouldn't. And I'll tell you why: because we screened the movie, and it screened well. 
up until the end, and then people didn't like the ending at all. And then we screened it again with a slightly different ending, and it played a little bit better, but not so well. Then we went to, I think it was Phoenix, I don't even remember where we went. And on the way back from Phoenix on the Paramount Jet, one of the uh, production executives came up with the new ending for um, Fatal Attraction. So that it was really, um, the screening process led to the new ending because it it didn't, um, because the movie wasn't playing as well as it could. And then when we tested the new ending, that's the completely new ending, it tested through the roof. But I mean, that, that was kind of the result of your work though, right? That's right. It was the result of our work, but we didn't rewrite or reshoot the new ending. <laughs> so... Do you think that after sort of shepherding that massive success, because that was, a, I think, a $14 million movie that went on to gross like more than $300 million worldwide. Yeah, um, yeah. Do you think that after shepherding that success, that that gave your firm more clout in terms of making similar suggestions to other films? You know, it was, you know, the, the work that we were doing was building, and it was building because people realized that it worked. Earlier, there was a uh, there was a critic who sort of breached the test screening process. He reviewed a film, and the name of the film is escaping my mind. I think it was. Uh, I'm sorry. Who was it? Who was it? I'm sorry. I remember the film. It was. Uh, I think it was. I'll do anything. Oh, oh, the Jim Brooks movie. Yeah, yeah. And there was a critic, and his name eludes me, but uh-huh. he, he had reported on the results of a test screening, and he got in, you know, a lot of trouble with his publication. Uh-huh. And I think that sort of set a precedent that these screenings were not really for the press at all. Well, no, they definitely weren't. They were private. It would be like if, if in fact, you were testing, um, you know, a new Coca-Cola, um, and you were doing it in, you know, in a, in a way that was private in a testing lab, um, you know, you wouldn't want somebody uh, telling telling um, the world that it was bad or that it was good or it's not worth the effort. I mean, it's a private process, and it's always been a pro- the test screening is a private process that should be respected. So, you know, essentially that leads us to Ain't It Cool News, which was this website that. Uh, I think one oh, no, day. I know all, yeah, I know all about Ain't It Cool News. Yeah, I forget his name, the guy. But Harry yeah. Harry Knowles. Harry Knowles. Harry Knowles. Yeah, my sister just reminded me. Harry Knowles. Yeah. So. So, how did you hear about Ain't It Cool News? Uh, when did you first discover them? I, we heard about Harry Knowles because he was posting online, right? So, and it came to the attention of the studios, and so that's how we first became aware of Harry Knowles. And, um, you know, he just, he did what he wanted to do, which was to disrupt the screening process. And I don't mean disrupt in a positive way, it's a negative way. Um, in much the same way I told you, you know, it's, it's private. It's private. All products are tested in some way or another, even services. So why should the movie industry, why should directors, producers, studios, all creative types be denied the opportunity to look at their work in a private setting. It makes, it really, if you think about it, it's a real breach 
and it's the it's the wrong thing to do. It really is the wrong thing to do. And I almost think that Harry Knowles thought it was a joke. Uh, and he took on Joe. I mean, he took on Joe in a really ugly way. You know, he posted terrible things about Joe back in the day. I don't remember. It seems like it's so long ago. It is long ago. I mean, Joe's been dead over 10 years. But, um, but you know, just really, you know, almost ugly stuff. And all he did was make it more difficult for people to look at their movies, people who mattered, people who put blood, sweat, and tears, and in the studio case, money, right, into this product. All he did was try to disrupt it, disrupt it and not in a positive way. You know, disruption, you know, we often think of it as being positive, and it can be, but he was not a positive influence, and he didn't do anything to advance any product except his own, I think he sold his company. God only knows what he sold it for. Um, actually, uh, he never did sell it. And now, oh, uh, he never did sell it? Oh, interesting. It's pretty worthless. It's, it's not worth very much yeah. right now. Yeah, yeah, The argument that Harry Knowles would make as for why he did what he did is that these test screenings were used to wrestle control of the film from filmmakers. That it why? Was often used. Why? I mean, why would he say that? They, they have it in their contract that they want to do their own screenings. I guess, you know, because uh, in his perspective, and again, I'm I'm not taking a side here in this issue. Are you Harry Knowles? Are you Harry Knowles calling me under the name of Joe Scott? <laughs> Absolutely not. I am Joe Scott calling under the name of Joe Scott. But, uh, yeah, I appreciate this. I don't want to ever have that mistake. But, um, yeah, um, so, but, yeah, essentially... That was their belief, is that mm-hmm. you'd have directors who would make these films, and then the studios would use the test screening to take the film from them, order changes against their will, and sort of have everything uh, sort of taken out of their control, essentially, and they lose creative control of their films. Well, there's one very big, um, very big fallacy in that. And that is, except for really the top of the A-list directors, directors don't get final cut. So the studio, so the directors have two choices, or the creative teams have two choices. They can ask an audience to comment, or they could leave it in the hand of the, of the studio. And in any way, the control of the film is taken away from the creative team. If, in fact, you have a recruited audience screening, the director has a voice because you have you have an experience in which you can hear what the audience how the audience responds you can hear the focus group you can look at the cards and you can debate it with data and you could say well that doesn't matter but that matters rather than having someone in 1964 sitting in a studio as a head of a studio saying, you know, um, Billy Joe, I don't like this movie at all. I'm changing the ending. And Billy Joe would not have the opportunity to say, but I think the audience would like it. So it's a real fallacy. Also, if you put in $100 million to make a movie and then another $75 million to market it worldwide... Um, you know, you, you might want to have, you know, you, you have skin in the game. So, yeah. 
And frankly, yes. if in fact movies are not successful, then there are not going to be any more movies. So yes, there's so there's always been this fine line between art and commerce, always, and it it will continue until forever. You know, and I do want to make one, you know one thing clear. Joe did not have an argument with Harry Knowles. I mean, this is not like high school schoolyard. I mean, Harry Knowles was playing with millions of dollars of other people's money. Joe tried to keep him out of, not only Joe, but the whole industry tried to keep him out of their screenings as best they could. One time he dressed up as a woman to get in um, and, and posted it all over, you know, wherever. So, yeah. And, and, you know, this is not about an argument. I mean, this is like saying to the head of General Motors, um, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm here. I'm going to work on your car, and I sign an NDA, and then I go and I rip it apart online. You would be really sued by General Motors. This is not an argument. I mean, that's that's really making light of of the whole situation because this is a person with his team because there's more than one screening a night, and they would show up. And there's no way of keeping them out unless they came over and over and over again. And now it's now it's different with with all the things that that the uh, research companies do in terms of background checks, et cetera, et cetera. It's different. But in those days, um, we didn't have all of that available to us. But it, this was not an argument with Joe Farrell. This was an argument with the entire industry. And since we did most of the screenings, we were we were sort of leading the cause, if you will about, you know, you shouldn't be coming to these screenings. Uh, we we were not impacted financially. The studios were impacted financially. One of the things that Harry had alleged in his book was that NRG had hired private investigators. I don't support to hire private investigators. I'll tell you the truth. If that's the case, I have absolutely no recollection of it, and I have a really good memory. Cool. And I was... And I was, um, I was co-CEO at the time, so and I was deeply involved in every single decision. I don't remember that we ever did that. And if we did, I would be happy to tell you. So here's a question then. Um, Joe Farrell, you know, and I'll tell you, I was a kid going to Anik Cool News all the time when I was a teenager. I, I was always on the internet reading these articles and reading about Joe Farrell and how he was this big, bad boogeyman. And you're someone who knew him not as a boogeyman. You're someone who knew him as a colleague, as a person, perhaps as a friend. Um, what would you like people to know about who Joe Farrell was as a person? He is absolutely brilliant. He loved movies. He was creative himself. He had um, he had a uh, he studied um, art from the time he was seven years old. He had a major fellowship to Notre Dame. He studied under a major sculptor called Mestovic, a Yugoslav, at that time, Yugoslavian sculptor. And he loved the business. And I think that it's the legacy he left and the legacy that I left with him it can't be replicated. We disrupted an industry in a positive way. And, um, you know, people, when, when you're successful, people say all kinds of things about you. And you just have to shrug it off. And not everybody's going to like you. And that's okay, too. You know, that's the way it is. Um, you know, you look at any leader 
anyone who starts something, anybody who's done something that is noticed, there are going to be the positive and there are going to be the negative. But I think, it, but people really know about Joe in their heart of hearts, whether they want to admit it or not, um, is that he was absolutely brilliant. And that the two of us were a great team. Cheryl Boone Isaacs once said something about the two of us that, that really summed it up. And people who know us or who knew us get it. She said, Joe and Catherine is a unique entity. The singular verb, not the plural, because we were two sides of a coin. And we both loved what we did. We loved the industry. We loved movies. Um, I still do. Uh, and, you know, that's, you know, and I think that we really changed the way in which movies were marketed worldwide. So that was my talk with Catherine Para. I, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Um, Chris, you found out something really quickly that you wanted to share with everyone. Yeah. So the book that I mentioned earlier about NPR, it's a fabulous book. I have the title. It's called Out on the Wire, The Storytelling Secrets of the New Masters of Radio. Um, I recommend it if you're interested in learning a little bit more about how NPR crafts their amazing stories. Is that a, a graphic novel? It is. It's a graphic novel. So what happened is the author, Jessica Abel, um, interviewed all of these people ranging from, you know, Ira Glass to um, uh, other, you know, uh, uh, the, the Mothman, I think. Wait, what's, the, what's it called? Moth the Radio moth. Hour? The, the moth, moth, the Moth, right. Um, she interviews all these people and then she, she tells their perspective and stories through a graphic novel. So you see pictures of her, pictures of the people she interviews and illustrations of what they're describing. And it's amazing. That's awesome. Uh, Mm -hmm. Well, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to call my local comic book store and uh, tell them to put that on my list of books to order because uh, or any I w- bookstore I think I think you can get it at any uh, ask a bookstore to order it too it's not a, <laughs> it's like a it's a book but but the illustrations are in the form of the graphic novel I'm going to get it from my comic book store thank you <laughs> <laughs> that is fine I love bookmarks I don't know if anyone is in Winston we have an independent nonprofit bookstore called bookmarks and I get everything there but support your local comic book store too local comic store, local bookstore. Yeah. Yeah. Chris, um, thanks again for uh, being part of this conversation with me. And thanks again for helping me with all the things that you do for the show. And thanks for having me. It's been a lot of fun and I'm just glad to be on the project. It's been a a really fun, interesting experience. So (laughs) yeah, thank you so much. And um, here is a preview of episode four, which we'll be releasing next week. Enjoy. When producers of the hit TV series Siskel and Ebert were hiring for a new show director in 1993, they hit a major snag. The previous director was leaving the program, which was filmed in Chicago, in order to take a job in New York. And when producers offered the job to someone, they found that this was something they would have to do again and again and again. And I said, well, how many people do you offer it to? And they said, 24. And I'm like, what? That's former Chicago-based TV director Don Dupree, who as fate would have it, 
would be the 25th person to be offered this job on the show. I, I had always been a big movie fan and I had watched those guys growing up. They contacted me out of the blue. I was working for NBC in Chicago. For Don, landing the job to direct the hit movie reviews program with legendary critics Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert was a major opportunity. However, blowing through 24 job offers was more than a little crazy. But according to Don, there was a reason for that. It turns out that everybody that they offered the job to that was on, that Roger knew about or recommended, Gene would veto. And everyone that Gene came up with, Roger would veto. It was a, a rivalry. After getting approval from the executives of Disney, the company that produced the show, Don's next stop in this three-phase series was to have an interview with Gene Siskel. I had to go interview with Gene Siskel, who I'd never met over at his house, his condo, which was a beautiful place in Lakeview in Chicago. So I went and uh, it was the first time I had ever seen a giant screen TV. I was really intimidated because I, I said, these guys were icons to me. And so Gene asked me to stand next to the TV and he put in a, a recent show that he and Roger had done and asked me to critique the show. And Gene disagreed with me on pretty much everything I said. And so I reached a point where I just thought, I'm definitely not getting this job, so I'm gonna be really brutally honest. So it just went downhill from there. Despite the fact that Don had tried to bomb this interview by way of brutal honesty, Gene's response was surprising. Gene said to me, well, we don't agree on a lot, but I have to say you were honest, which is more than most people we've interviewed have been. And he said, so, you know, I like you said you got my vote. And I was shocked. But the next step was to get Roger Ebert's approval. This challenge became more daunting, especially now that Gene Siskel had just vouched for Don. But Gene then did something for Don that the TV director did not expect. He set him up to succeed and win over Roger Ebert. And he goes, do you like old movies? I said, of course. Great. Well, Roger, you love old movies and tell him you saw that. Fantastic. The second thing is, do you have uh, a Mac computer? Yeah, I've got a Mac. Perfect. Roger thinks there are two types of people in this world, those with a Mac and those without. And those without Macs are idiots, and those with Macs are brilliant. So tell him you got a Mac and you got the job. At first, Don suspected he was being set up to fail. I, I thought it was a setup all the way. They'll have a big laugh at my expense later on. But after a cab ride to the theater where Ebert was screening a movie, Don was at least willing to give Gene's advice a try. So Roger says, what can you tell me about yourself? And I said, well, I love old movies, and I own a Mac. And he looked at me and said, you got the job. And just like that, Don worked with Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert on their show for nearly two decades until it went off the air. He said that many times production on the show could be intense, that the fighting we heard on air was nothing compared to what happened in the studio between takes. No one from the outside was allowed in. They got really hostile and uh, we would have to stop taping many times. The fighting was, uh, it was pretty intense. But then the fighting stopped. In 1999, Gene Siskel died suddenly and tragically as the result of terminal brain cancer. And despite whatever heaviness Roger Ebert might have felt about the death of his longtime collaborator, the show had to go on to keep his show at the movies running during the period immediately following Gene Siskel's death. Roger Ebert decided not to hire a permanent co-host, at least not right away. Instead, he would bring on a rotating series of co-hosts guest critics who reviewed movies for newspapers and magazines. And to Don's surprise, when selecting potential co-hosts for his new show, Ebert picked someone from a place that no one had expected. 
The internet. And this person from the internet would be none other than the webmaster of Ain't It Cool News, a man by the name of Harry J. Knowles. On this episode of Download, The Rise and Fall of Harry Knowles and Ain't It Cool News, we will chronicle the era when both the website and its creator were at the height of their influence and power. We will also talk about Ebert and Knowles, a trio of controversies that occurred at Comic-Con, the death of Joe Hollenbeck, and the rise of Vin Diesel. All of this and more. So let's get ready to dial up, log on, and download. Welcome 